from the National Association of Evangelicals, welcome to today's conversation. Our topic, Changing a Denomination's Theological Standards. Host Leif Anderson, NAE President, talks with Kevin Complin and Greg Strand, leaders of the Evangelical Free Church of America. Let's join in. I'm Leif Anderson, President of NAE, here today with Kevin Complin and Greg Strand. Kevin has been President of the Evangelical Free Church of America since 2015. He was previously a senior leader of REACH Global, which is the international mission of the EFCA, and served for over 20 years as pastor of two EFCA churches. We also have with us Greg Strand, who has been the executive director of theology and credentialing at the Free Church since 2002. And he has also served in local church ministry in a variety of capacities, including youth pastor, associate pastor of adult ministries, and senior pastor. At its last uh, national meeting, the EFCA made a significant change to its statement of faith, which is what we're here to talk about today. So thanks for both of you in joining us today. Uh, you're welcome, Lee. We're uh, glad to be here. It's a joy and a privilege to join you. Okay, so let's start with Kevin. Um, I've been exploring the uh, Free Church website, and one of the first lines under the tab, Statement of Faith, says the Evangelical Free Church of America is an association and fellowship of autonomous and independent churches united around the same statement of faith. So uh, I'd think that changing your statement of faith was a pretty significant thing to do. And so is that how you saw it, that this was a big deal, significant? And oh, so many questions. And how did pastors and others in the denomination see it? And were they worried that uh, if you have one change, you're going to have more changes. Uh, maybe that's too many questions, but get us started. Well, thanks, Lee. I, I would agree. Certainly, the process and even the concept of changing our statement of faith was a very significant thing for us. It's not something that we uh, take lightly. In fact, uh, the statement of faith originally for EFCA uh, really was written back in 1950, and it, it took until just a decade ago or so till we began to to look at making any changes to it. So making a change to a statement of faith is a very, very significant thing that we took seriously, and uh, our pastors did as well. I, I'd say across the country, uh, our pastors and leaders of, of EFCA churches throughout this process were very committed to making sure that what we did, we did well, and we did it with a good understanding of the biblical text and, and uh, our own theological history so that we weren't rushing into something, and uh, something that we did intentionally and uh, to a degree very slowly because it was such a significant thing. All right, we've talked around it, so let's talk about what it is. What was the actual change to your statement of faith? Well, the change to our statement of faith was was a change to Article Nine of our statement of faith, which which is our statement on Christ's return, and it was a change removing the word premillennial and substituting the word glorious, so that the statement would read currently with a change: We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and as our blessed hope motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, 
and energetic mission. So in that statement, there was a one-word change from premillennial to glorious in describing the return of Jesus. And all the rest of that eschatology statement is the same as it was before, except that one word. Is that right? Yep. All the, yep, all the rest of it is the same. One word was changed. All right. So, Greg, you're the guy that's in charge of uh, credentialing and theology and monitoring all this kind of stuff. So you're the guy to ask for anybody who has no idea what this very long word premillennial means or what it is. Um, define. Talk about it. Yeah. Great question. It's a critical question. And let me do this in two parts. The first is the millennium. What is the millennium? And then let's talk about premillennialism. The millennium refers to uh, eschatology, uh, that doctrine that focuses on last things. God created with a purpose, with a telos, an end to his providential plan. And, and this focuses on the end time. The term millennium comes from the Latin mill, 1,000, and annum, year, meaning a 1,000 years. Uh, this belief is grounded in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, so it's not the only text that has to address this issue, but it's primarily grounded in Revelation 20, verses 1 to 6, in which the expression 1,000 years occurs five times in these six verses. The actual term is kilioi which is transliterated as chiliasm, which is another way to refer to this time period. That's, that's the millennium. Now, in brief, premillennialism then affirms Christ's return will be prior to or before his thousand-year reign on earth, thus the pre in premillennial. Now, to complete the millennial picture, this differs from postmillennialism, which affirms Christ will return after the millennium, thus the, the post and amillennialism, which affirms there is no future millennium, but identifies it with the present church age, thus the awe. So that's a brief primer on millennium and uh, premillennialism. All right, Greg, while we're talking about this, um, let, let me just fill in my own uh, memory of church history. So uh, postmillennialism was pretty popular at the end of the 18th, the beginning of the 19th century. 1909, mm -hmm. the Schofield Reference Bible came along, had, it was a bestseller, broad popularity. And Kevin mentioned that your doctrinal statement was uh, initially adopted in 1950. That would have been about the peak or the beginning of the peak of the Schofield Reference Bible. It, that was really popular at that time and pretty broad-based. So it was in yeah. that context that this was originally worded into. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, it, it, thank you for that. Uh, let me just give a brief history. Th that is, you know, for us in our movement, and we're not the only ones, you know, as far as the National Association of Evangelicals, you were as well, you know, founded in the 1940s and, and a number of evangelical institutions were. Well, many were influenced, looking back a bit, were influenced by John Nelson Darby and dispensationalism, which is a form of premillennialism. They were also influenced by the Niagara Bible conferences of at the end of the 19th century, which, which focused primarily, not exclusively, but primarily on prophecy and premillennialism. Well, in our own movement, many were also influenced by Dwight L. Moody, including his view on premillennialism. In fact, for us, Frederick Fronson, one of our free church founders, church planter, not just here, but, but around in, in Europe as well, was considered Moody's Swedish disciple 
And he was actually the first missionary sent out from Moody Church, uh, the church that uh, Moody planted and pastored. And another in interesting uh, uh, piece of information is that Moody Bible Institute was the place where our Swedish free church pastors were trained from 1916 to 1926. And at the beginning of the 20th century, as you mentioned, Lee, many were influenced by the Schofield Reference Body, uh, Bible. Uh, and then for us, more particularly, uh, the mergers happening between uh, 1946 to 1950, well, May 14th, 1948, the Nation of Israel was established. The merger discussion happening in these time, this, these, these periods of time, these, these years, in the midst of that, right, in the middle of it, Israel is established as a nation. And, and, and thus, discussions and decisions were happening in the midst of what was thought to be the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Now, it's also important to then hear, talking about history of premillennialism, this is all sort of that larger historical context. Some in our discussion the last uh, 11 years, some, some thought that we were moving away from our history. However, it is important to note that our history didn't begin in 1950, though our, our 1950 statement, of faith, our merger statement did explicitly uh, uh, include premillennialism. And certainly premillennialism was embedded in that statement of faith. But during the merger of the Norwegian-Danish Free Church and the Swedish Free Churches, uh, well, when that happened in 1950, it, it was included. But if we consider our earlier history, say, for example, 1884 or 1912 on the Norwegian-Danish side, an, ex an exclusive premillennial view was not included in, in prior statements of faith. In fact, if you go to the merger of the Norwegian-Danish Free Church Association in 1912, here you'll find interesting, their statement on eschatology is very similar to what was adopted this last summer by uh, our Free Church Conference. And here, here's what it says. We believe that Jesus Christ, who ascended into heaven, shall come again in great power and glory. So it's, uh, it's very similar. That's sort of a, a, a brief history, not just broadly or more broadly, but also more specifically with our own Free Church uh, history as well. All right, so that sets the context and the history, which I think is really important to understand, especially how uh, earlier generations of leaders uh, made their decisions. But let's go back to Kevin. Uh, when this 1950 statement of faith was created, uh, it stood for a long time. And then when, when did this process for uh, updating uh, begin? And, and tell me about Bill Hamill's role in this. Bill is a longtime friend, uh, former chair of the board of NAE, and, and I know this was a big deal to him, too. So what, what's that process been like? What was Bill's part? And then sort of that got handed off to you when you became the president of the Free Church. Right. Well, the, as you said, Lee, the statement of faith that was crafted in the, for the 1950 merger between the Norwegian-Danish Free Church and the Swedish Free Church stood uh, really unchanged uh, for decades. And it was in um, early 2000s that uh, I know uh, Bill Hamill and some of the leaders of the Free Church began to ask the question uh, in light of, of, of uh, just the, the growth of the movement. And, and certainly, as Greg said earlier, there are things that were happening in the U.S., in the church, in our culture back in 1950 that were somewhat different uh, when we moved into 2000 and beyond, and that Really, they really felt it was a great opportunity for us to look at our statement of faith, to refine it and strengthen it. 
And Bill was the one who really led that charge, and it was uh, primarily 2004 to 2000, 2008, 2009, that time period, when a lot of discussion went, went was, was taken place across the EFCA on refining and, and strengthening our statement of faith. And it was a long process. Bill did a great job of leading that. Greg was deeply involved in that from the very beginning. In fact, uh, Greg, you spent most of the last 15 years engaged in this process for updating our statement of faith. And uh, maybe it'd be better for you to step in and, and take the story from here. Yeah, I'd be glad to. Thank you, Kevin. Um, uh, Yes, Kevin is right. Actually, it, it, the story goes further back. There was there was an, uh, a discussion, and it was actually brought to our conference and discussed to update our statement of faith, to revise our statement of faith for the 50-year anniversary. So about 1992, 93, uh, there was discussion at the conference to to update uh, some of the uh, language and and address some of these issues issues um, at the at the 50th anniversary of, of the merger. And, and at that point, um, Dr. A.T. Olson raised some concerns. Dr. Olson was the president of the Free Church from 1951 to 1976, and he was instrumental in uh, incredible ways in which uh, God uh, has, has used and grown the Free Church. Uh, Dr. Olson was, was, was found foundational to some of that. And uh, he was instrumental in uh, uh, the merger um, in 46 to 50 and, and the drafting of the Statement of Faith. And so when he raised those concerns about 1993 or so, uh, the board of directors determined that it was best to just simply let it go at that time. And out of respect for Dr. Olson, to wait until uh, he was uh, with the Lord. Uh, so out of respect for him, it was postponed. Um, well, then in the early 2000s, as Kevin had mentioned, actually it started in 2003 when we began to put the Spiritual Heritage Committee together. And, and 2005 then actually was the first proposal, the first of three uh, proposals uh, for the initial Statement of Faith <laughs> revision that was adopted in 2008. And uh, interestingly, for three of those draft revisions, it did not have the term premillennial. But in light of uh, the uh, sense of where we were, we realized that it was, it was not the time. It was not the time. And so rather than losing all of the ways in which the statement of faith was strengthened, uh, premillennial is what was reinserted. It was presented then as a motion to the conference in 2007 and then adopted in 2008. But at that point, the discussion all revealed the fact that, that although premillennialism will be addressed at some was not determined at the time what, uh, when that would be, but the fact that it would be addressed at some point in the future was uh, in the discussion during, during uh, the conference in 2008. So um, it strengthened, virtually every article was strengthened, and then it was a matter of, uh, so when, when would this uh, happen again? So it was really just a, 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 a single process, uh, a, a single revision of our statement of faith that consisted of a two-step process. Some, some were concerned, somewhat concerned, that we're, we're revising our statement of faith a second time. And so thus it raised issues of, well, what's next and how can we, how can we uh, you know, we're concerned about that. And rightly so. Uh, a statement of faith is something that you, 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 you take 
seriously. It, it, it provides some stability. And, and to, to have this in a, in a matter of a decade addressed again, uh, it did raise legitimate concerns. And, and I think the better way to see that was a single revision, but in a two-step process. And that's then uh, what ended up happening. The, the principles, let me just say quickly, the principles that guided our statement of faith revision. It should focus on the gospel. Second, it should strengthen our commitment to biblical authority, not, not move away, but strengthen it. Third, it should reflect our evangelical tradition. Fourth, it should address some new issues. That's, that's the nature of a statement of faith. It addresses new issues. Fifth, it should increase theological clarity. Sixth, it should be brief, though not minimalist nor maximalist. And finally, it should embody a key principle of our EFCA heritage, unity in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those are things that guided both of our revisions, uh, our single revision, in two steps. All right, as someone who's not free church, uh, let me ask Kevin a question on, about polity and how do you actually do this? How do you actually make a change? For example, there are some organizations, there are some churches that the only way you can change uh, a doctrinal statement is unanimously. So that means any one person can stop it. I've got to assume that for the EFCA, that was not the case. So you must have had a certain percentage of vote. What were the rules here? Well, one of my concerns as serving as president of the Free Church is that our congregational polity would be lived out well. And so really this process began by pastors across the country um, saying, are, are we going to revisit in a sense, this second step, as Greg said, of our statement of faith change, so that it would we talk about the word premillennial again and make that that adjustment. Their voices, then, I encourage them to speak with our spiritual heritage committee that that Greg is involved in in working with to be able to share those concerns. Our spiritual heritage committee took input from across the country made, a, made a, a recommendation to our board of directors to bring this to our conference for a vote. It was a two-year process. Once it was brought to uh, the conference, it was read at a conference in one year, and two years later is when we actually voted on it. During that two-year period of time, we held 22 question and answer sessions about this change across the country over a period of two years leading us to our conference this last summer where a requirement of a two-thirds majority vote was needed for the change to pass because our statement of faith is a part of our organizational documents and because of that it requires a supermajority of two-thirds for it to be able to pass you must have gotten two-thirds we did. We got uh, just over 79% uh, in, in, in that vote, which was encouraging that it's uh, uh, certainly, when you think of a large number of people that were at our conference, uh, roughly four out of five said, yes, this is the direction we should go. All right, let me ask you a question you may not know the answer to. Did you have a prediction of what the percentage would be before the vote was taken? Oh, did I personally, did I have a prediction of it? Yeah, did you know, you know what was going to happen? No, not really. Uh, I mean, here's here's what I kept telling people. Uh, people across the country would ask me. I'm travel. I travel a lot. Is out with different groups of people. They'd say, "Hey, Kevin, do you think it's going to pass?" And I said, "What I know for sure in congregational governance, 
whoever shows up at the meeting will determine whether it passes or not. <laughs> and so I just kept encouraging people to come. My, my thought was, if you care about this issue, come to our conference this summer. This is your opportunity to express your concern or your support for this. And uh, we, had, uh, we had the largest conference turnout we've had in 20 years. So people, I think, uh, heard the word and came to be able to express uh, their, their perspective on this change. Which seems to me to be really important because you want to have a mandate on something that is this significant and to have a record-breaking attendance that, you know, that affirms the significance of the vote. So let me go back to Greg. Uh, some people didn't like this, I assume, and they didn't want the change to take place. Um, what, why didn't they want it to be changed? Yeah, I think there were a couple of uh, couple of things, at least. I think one was there was a there was a concern that that this move is it's a denial of inerrancy or the authority of the scriptures. Uh, ma many would equate uh, a certain premillennial understanding, uh, a, a certain read of the scriptures, as hand in hand uh, of affirming uh, the doctrine of inerrancy. It's, it's what it's what they had been taught. And at the end of the day, that was grounded in the notion of God and his character. That is to say, if God has made a promise, then it needs, it needs to be fulfilled. And, and, and so that was, that was one of the concerns that was raised. And, you know, rightly so, then one, I mean, anytime one is going to move away from the, the, the authority of the inerrance of the scripture, that is an issue that, of which we must be gravely concerned. The question is, does it? Does it? And and is is that is that understanding the only way in which one can affirm the inerrancy and the authority of the scriptures? And that was part of the discussion. This is where it's also important to understand some of the larger history. A second issue was, well, if it didn't deny inerrancy, it is at least a slippery slope toward the denial of inerrancy or the undermining the authority of the Bible. And um, possibly, um, but it doesn't, again, it doesn't necessarily equate the one for one. Uh, a third is that this is a move away from our history, and certainly it was a move away from some of our history, from our history at least in 1950, the, the the merger statement of faith between the Swedes, the Norwegians, and Danes, and we talked about that earlier. But but if you looked at our longer history, it, it wasn't necessarily a move away from our history. Well, then the other concern was well, this this is changing our distinctive, and and I think for many. Uh, this became one of the key issues of of uh, the free church. That is, this is this is our distinctive. And in fact, uh, A.T. Olson would have said that th this is this is really, in light of the, the establishing the nation of Israel, this is one of the key reasons that that God has raised up the free church to be a harbinger of this eschatological view and and the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Well, uh, part of part of that issue is was that our underlying undergirding distinctive, or is our pre-church distinctive um, the fact that we, we will be unified around the, the, the central truths of the gospel? That's going to be, and then we're not going to divide on some of the other issues through which uh, history, there have been various views and understandings that are considered evangelical and orthodox. And so for, for some, it may have changed are distinctive, at least some read it that way, but, but the sense was that there is an undergirding distinctive in the free church, and in some ways, it's that we're not so distinctive. 
we focus on the essentials of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that is reflective of who we are. All right, so you're in charge of credentialing and things like that, uh, ordination. How, how does this reach out? How, what, what is the, you know, the pebble in the pond that's going to reach with ripples across? Um, what, what difference is this going to make in the free church or in getting ordained or churches yeah. that want to join the denomination? Does it, is this going to make a difference? Yeah, um, sh- sure it will. Um, I, I think at the, at, the, at the end of the day, uh, the, um, the major thing that this allowed us to do, and let me just say, say the general principle, and that is to be more consistent and reflective of who we are. That is, that is we, we allow differences on pedo or credo, uh, baptism. Now, it's not salvific, either one, whether it's infant or believer, but we won't divide over the time and the mode. Uh, regarding salvation, whether one uh, believes that one's regenerated and then believes, or one believes and is then regenerated, the, the Calvinism and Arminianism uh, question, uh, we, we offer a, uh, either, we, we focus on essentials, but allow either on those. Uh, the, 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 and these kinds of things, and now this, this decision allows us to be more consistent with who we say we are. So at the end of the day, I mean, what will change is that we are, we're still predominantly premillennial. Of course, we've, it's been required up to this point. So we're still uh, predominantly premillennial. Um, but, but it will, and, and it doesn't exclude premillennial. It just simply broadens. We're, not, we're no longer exclusively premillennial, so it broadens our eschatological views. We've, uh, we've done our first uh, certificate of ordination from one who affirms all millennialism. Um, so, so it will broaden our eschatological uh, perspectives and, and at least allowances. But the other thing that's important to bear in mind is it's not a standalone doctrine. It's a doctrine that consists of a statement of faith that one must affirm every other belief in our statement of faith regarding the, the, the doctrine of God and the scriptures and the human condition and the person and work of Christ and the Holy Spirit and the church. Uh, Etc. And so um, it will have some effect, but I, I think it's going to have a, 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 a an affirming, positive effect um, uh, across the ESCA. What about your schools? What about your churches? You have churches across the nation. You have Trinity International University. I assume they all have doctrinal statements. Probably uh, a lot of them have the exact same doctrinal statement that you just changed. So what do they do about that? Do they have to change theirs? And if they yeah. don't, then yeah. does somebody need to be premillennial to join a free church, even though the denomination doesn't require that? Yeah, great question. It, it, our statement of faith uh, uh, serves as a doctrinal standard for all EFC churches. Uh, in other words, in order to be an EFC church, you've got to adopt our EFCA statement of faith. Now, there is a grandfather rule clause such that those who are already free churches and have come in under a nine, either the 1950 or the 2008 Statement of Faith, they still are at liberty to affirm that Statement of Faith. Any church becoming a free church after this year, that is to say January 1, 2020, they will then have to adopt the 2019 Statement of Faith. Now, that also means same thing with all those who are credentialed in the EFCA. All those serving with the Reach Global, our international mission. Um, and I would also say this, that the, the statement of faith of the EFCA, because TIU is a denominational school, 
they too have embedded in their uh, bylaws, et cetera, the, their documents that are, are the ESCA statement of faith. It's uh, required of the president of TIU to agree to and affirm annually without mental reservation our statement of faith. The same is true of all full-time affiliate and adjunct faculty members, which is also true of all full-time members of the administration. So that's the, 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 the there is a, a broader reach, at uh, least, for how the, the EFCA statement of faith uh, is used and the kind of, of uh, authority it has uh, amongst our free, church, free churches and uh, the school. I would add too, Lee, that for uh, Trinity International University, um, their statement of faith is, as Greg said, is the EFCA statement of faith. And so when the EFCA statement of faith was uh, amended or changed this summer, Trinity's statement of faith uh, automatically became the same as the new statement of faith of the EFCA. All right, Kevin, the, the Free Church shares a lot of history with uh, the Baptist General Conference, now called Converge, and the Evangelical Covenant Church. And it's interesting that even though you have a shared history, neither of them adapted, adopted uh, premillennialism, and they took very different approaches on infant and believer's baptism. The Free Church sort of stayed in the middle on that one. So what, what does that mean in terms of your distinctives as a denomination? Um, you know, if you're on an elevator and somebody asks, you know, who do you work for? And you say the Evangelical Free Church of America, after you've explained evangelical and after you've explained free, um, what, what do you say are the distinctives of the EFCA? Well, I, I think one of the distinctives, and, and Greg's already explained it uh, a few moments ago, and, and that is our focus a major on gospel majors as far as major on those major issues, minor on the minor issues, make sure that what we are really is focused on that those gospel essentials. Now, with that in mind, certainly, uh, as I think of the free church, what I would love people to see as distinctives for us is a high view of scripture, of the inerrancy, the authority of the word of God, uh, a, a high view of, of a solid orthodox theology, that theology matters to us, and in fact, we just uh, just uh, about a year ago uh, did a five years uh, theology survey of our pastors. And once again, it's clear that free church pastors care about good theology, uh, but also a heart for mission of being on God's mission. And that's focused on evangelism, disciple making, living that out. I mean, those are all distinctive as I think of people think of the free church that I would love to see them see us as people with a high view of the word of God, uh, of a high view of good theology, deep love for our, for our Lord and for, for our Savior Jesus that's lived out, that we live on mission with him. And so that along with just organizationally, certainly we're congregational in our, in our polity and our governance, which is a distinctive of how we're organized. But I think for the most part, the truth is with EFCA, we tend to uh, focus on what we agree with most other evangelicals about than what we disagree with. And uh, that's where we so appreciate being a part of NAE as well with, uh, with many of those things that we so clearly uh, hold together. I have a last question that I'd actually like both of you to answer. Uh, <clears throat> and since Kevin, you have the mic at this moment, maybe we should just start with you. But 
Uh, what have you learned from all this? And I'm particularly, I'm particularly interested in advice that you could give to other organizations or networks or denominations that may face some similar issues or similar questions. Uh, would they want to make a change like this? Uh, you, you followed an amazing process, and I guess that's part of your answer, but what, what advice can you give to others? Well, I, I think certainly um, lead the process and making sure it's clearly defined and following it really well is essential. Uh, that helps to, to lower some of people's angst. Uh, anytime the change takes place, um, people get nervous, especially when it's changed to something as significant to a denomination like the statement of faith. And so part of what we wanted to do was to clarify not only the process, but to clarify what's not changing. I mean, even in this most recent discussion about premillennialism, as, as people shared their concern, will this impact our, our understanding of the scriptures and our commitment to the authority of the scriptures and how we interpret them? Well, it was helpful for us to go back to the article in our statement of faith on the scriptures, which is rock solid and wasn't changing at all. And to make sure that people understood what's not changing. I think then secondly, as, as, as beyond the process and what's not changing, move to, to one other. And that is just working very hard to help people to understand. And it's having opportunity over time, face-to-face -face time with people, hearing patiently and, and openly questions and concerns that people would have. And I know as Greg and I traveled the country, and Greg did much more than I in having these Q&A times, it's just recognizing that every question that's asked, we want, we want to be able to respond to it as though it was the first time that it was asked because it matters to the person that's asking it. And as we both honor the process and the people and the understanding then of how that fits with our own history, um, I think that has helped us to navigate this in a way that as this process went through the free church, I have to say, I was proud of our free church leaders. We, had, we carried on very good and very passionate discussions about this, but it was done in a way I think that really honored Jesus. So, Greg, what advice, what yeah. lessons learned do you add to that? Wow. Um, I think this, uh, for uh, most that will begin to listening to, uh, to this, Leith, you know, you've got to reaffirm uh, the uh, commitment to the inerrance and the authority of the scriptures. Plain and simple. There's, only, there's one absolute authority. Um, there's one norming norm, and it's the Bible alone. Now, that doesn't mean there isn't a place for confessions and creeds. There, there is. But that's, that's a standardized norm, uh, but there's one, and you, you, you just, you have to reaffirm that. Because inevitably what happens is people will equate a statement of faith or a confession with the Bible. And, and, and if you begin to revise or even speak towards revising a statement of faith, their, their initial thought is that, that this, this, is, this is undermining the Bible. So, so re, reaffirm your commitment to, to the inerrancy of the third of the Bible. Secondly, I would say this, it's, 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 it's critical to understand historical theology. That is to say, how has this, this issue that we're addressing, how has it been understood uh, historically? How has it been understood through, through history? Um, for example, I mean, how many of us know that the Nicene Creed that we recite today was a it is a revised creed? The Creed of 325, Nicaea, was revised in 381, Constantinople. There were new issues that they needed to address. So it's not as if it's not done 
ought to be done. And so even understanding some of that is critical. Third, I think it's critical to understand or have someone understand what are the issues of the day? What are the issues of the day? Those issues that are undermining the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. What are those issues that need to be addressed in order to retain our commitment? In other words, in order to remain the same, what are the issues we need to address? And some consider sameness never changing, whereas I think the better way to see that is, is one remains the same. That is to say, the same commitments that birthed us require some change along the way to remain faithful to who we are. I would say this as well, um, that, that when we engage in these discussions, commit to inform, not convince. Approach it from the, the, the foundation of informing of the issues so that we are discussing and making decisions from the same page and don't do it from a posture of attempting to convince. The other thing I would say is this, manifest the truth in your response that you're speaking with your lips. All too often what would happen is people would, would, would articulate truth and the gospel with their lips, but then in certain responses, it was like, there's just a, there's an inconsistency. And so we must manifest in practice what we say with our lips. And the, long, the last thing I would say is this, be committed to the long-term. This was a 15-year process for us. Um, the last, most recent one, we engaged in 22 Q&As across the nation, 22 least different Q&As of just coming in and listening, listening to a group of uh, uh, pastors and leaders and, and others interested, 22 different Q&As uh, through the two-year process. So remain committed to the long term. Uh, after this uh, past, this last summer, my son, who's 30, was at the conference um, uh, he said, Dad, um, this has been half my life. And it was sobering to me. It was really sobering. Um, and yet it also struck me in this way. Statements of faith ought not to be changed lightly or flippantly. It ought to be given due diligence and given time. And um, so those are some things, Lee, that we learned over the last uh, couple of of uh, years, many years, that we've uh, engaged in this process. Our guests on today's conversation have been Kevin Complin and Greg Strand, leaders of the Evangelical Free Church of America. I'm Leith Anderson, and on behalf of us all, very special thanks to you both. The National Association of Evangelicals is where we use influence for good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we connect and represent evangelical Christians in the United States. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please follow along on Twitter at NAEvangelicals or on our Facebook page for the National Association of Evangelicals. And sign up for our email list when you visit our website at nae.net.